don't know me, my name's Sam. I'm uh, one of the elders here in the church. And over the last uh, month or so, we have been looking in the Gospel of John at what, at what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And so Jesus has been teaching uh, his disciples the kind of key things he wants to leave them with uh, before he is about to be crucified uh, and no longer be physically present with them. And so he's been emphasizing certain teachings and he then has been praying for the disciples. Some of the stuff that he's been emphasizing over the last uh, period of time that we've looked at is his deity, the fact that he is God, his relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He's spoken of his glory and that his disciples will be kept by Jesus in honouring God and indeed they will also be kept by the Father. He has spoken of his own suffering. He's spoken of the fact that his disciples are also going to suffer. He's spoken of the fact that we as the church should be unified with the unity that the Father and the Son have. Really powerful, amazing things that he's been leaving with his disciples. But if I had to draw out what I think his main chief point has been, it's one helpful and challenging for us because it summarizes the very purpose of Christ coming and the very purpose and direction for our own lives. Jesus has made it abundantly clear that he was sent by the Father He was consecrated, sanctified, set apart by the Father to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. Further, he has said that the purpose of those of us who are his followers is to proclaim the good news and so participate in the mission of Jesus. God saves through the hearing of the good news. And we are called by God to be proclaimers and we should be willing to walk 500 miles and 500 more. Well, that's terrible, right? That's just to see if Drew's listening to the live stream because if he is right now, the dad jokes are just driving him insane. Anyway, I hope you get my point. All of us in this room who are Christians have the same purpose the same direction, the same goal in our lives. And that is to glorify Jesus by telling people of his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, right? That is what we are called to do. Now, it's a biblical fact that not everyone is gifted to be an evangelist. Not everyone has that unique evangelistic gifting. But if you cannot become friends with someone from work, your neighbor over the fence, build up a relationship and wonder after time begin to share the gospel with them, it's not because you're not an evangelist, it's because you're disobedient to God's command, right? Everyone is capable of building a friendship and sharing the good news. Oh, but Sam, you say, 
I don't know what to say. Yes, you do. You really do. The Bible says that we should always be willing to give an answer for the hope that we profess. So let me ask you this, church. What is the hope that you have? Is it not that Jesus Christ on the cross defeated sin and death and that by hoping in him, you will have life forevermore in his name where you will spend eternity with him? That is the hope you profess. What is the message that you have to give people? That. Right? You don't need all the answers. They might throw up these weird questions that you don't know the answer to. Who cares? Your job is to tell them of the hope you profess. What is the hope you profess? That Jesus paid the penalty of your sin and you will have life forevermore in his name. Right? That's it. Full stop. And if they throw up these weird challenges to you, you just say, I can't answer that. What I can tell you is my sins are forgiven and I will be with Christ forevermore. Stand on that solid ground. That's it. That's what you're telling people. It's just not that hard. Don't overcomplicate it. Right? Stand on the hope of Christ. Seriously? My mate was saved when a non-church attending out there Pentecostal gave him a videotape of a televangelist and he took it home and watched it and there in his lounge room gave his life to Jesus. I'm not sure if the mate or the televangelist are Christians but somewhere in there he heard that Jesus died for his sins and that was enough. The shepherd called his sheep and he gave his life to Christ. Right? Don't overcomplicate it. What is the hope that we profess. So this is the encouragement that Jesus has been giving his disciples and intending to give you through him as well. This is his final teaching before he actually pays the penalty of their sin. In short, he is saying, I'm going to go and pay the cost and then you are going to go and proclaim the victory. Right? That is what he is trying to impress upon us. The hope that we profess in Jesus Christ. So that's what we've been looking at over the last weeks and now it actually pivots and we move to the part of John where we begin to look at the paying of the price of our salvation. So if you have your Bible there, open up to John chapter 18. We're going to go 1 to 14 this morning. John chapter 18 verses 1 through to 14. If you remember, I preach every week from the Christian Standard Bible, so if you want to grab one to follow along from, that's the one I preach from week to week. All right. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you were seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. 
Then he asked them again, who is it you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of these you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. Firstly, they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Amen. All right, so after Jesus has finished passing on all of this critical information, they head straight to a garden and they enter it. Now, we are told that this was a place that they went to frequently and that Judas Iscariot knew it well. Now, the language in ploy here means that this was a garden of olive trees and that they were entering into it means that it was probably a private, fully walled garden. In other words, it was an olive grove, fully walled and protected Uh, and probably owned by some sort of wealthy landowner who had given it to Jesus, well, not handed it over, but allowed Jesus and his followers to meet there as a kind of secluded place where they could get away uh, and probably have some respite away from the crowd. So we have a, a walled garden, closed off from public view, and it's only probably about a kilometer from Jerusalem. There is simply no better place to arrest Jesus than this garden. What were the authorities worried about in arresting Jesus? The crowds loved him. The crowds were responding to all the miracles. People hung around Jesus in their thousands. And their worry was that if they simply walked up and grabbed Jesus on the middle of the streets of Jerusalem, you're going to have a full-blown riot What they needed was to find a place where Jesus could be away from the crowds, away from uh, the public eye, where they could kind of arrest him and do what they liked. And here we have a high-walled, secure, out-of-the-public-eye garden, the perfect place to arrest Jesus. Question, if you knew they were trying to arrest you, and they were looking for you to be in a secluded place to do so, would you go to that garden? When Judas Iscariot, it says, knew it well? I mean, why does Jesus go there? Because as already noted by Christ himself, his time had come. The purpose of Jesus being sent into the world, the reason for his consecration is now at hand, to die in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserve. Jesus goes to the garden in order to be arrested at this stage. This is no surprise to Jesus. There's no shock to Jesus. He's there by the will of God to suffer and die. That is not about to be denied by Christ, the perfectly obedient son, obedient even to death on a cross. So Jesus, uh, Judas, knowing the place well, leads them directly to the garden. 
and the situation that the authorities have desperately been trying to find Jesus in. Now, they come with official Jews and a company of Roman soldiers in order to arrest Jesus. Now, verse 4, don't miss this. Jesus goes directly to them knowing everything that is about to happen. Now, John is at pains to point out, as we have mentioned, this is because of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was not simply a moral teacher who conflicted with Rome because they weren't yet ready for his message of love and tolerance, nor was he just a revolutionary who got taken out because he was trying to topple Rome. No, Jesus was God in the flesh, come by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And this is why Jesus directly walks up to them in the garden and says, who is it you're looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, that is me. And they fall to the ground. What's going on there with the falling to the ground? Well, it's not clear in the original language here, but Jesus has a way of catching people off guard. His power and authority are hard to handle when you're expecting just a simple, normal man. I want to flick back really quickly to John chapter 7. And John 7, it's just one sentence, 45 to 46, says this. Then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who asked them, why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. So they had a chance to arrest Jesus, but they got caught up in his authority, in his power, in his teaching, and they're so struck by who Christ is, they kind of almost forget their mission, right? What is it we're supposed to do? And Jesus has this ability to catch people off guard. Something about his, like I said, his authority, his bearing, stops people in their tracks. And I think this is what's happening in Gethsemane. They're not backing up to worship Jesus. I actually don't think in this instant they're struck to the ground by the power of God, although, of course, that is possible. I think they're so caught off guard by Jesus that they back away in order to regroup, in order to rethink, because Christ, once again, is just not what people expect. Two things. Firstly, for the Jewish leadership, the words from Jesus, I am, he, would have struck a chord. We know that I am is a constant reference to God from at the burning bush when God said, my name is I am. And Jesus over a number of times has said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus has consistently been claiming to be God. And here, at the moment of confrontation, when the Jewish leaders want to arrest him for blasphemy, Jesus once again says, I am. Doesn't care about the walled garden doesn't care about the Roman soldiers, once again, he claims to be God. And I think for the Jewish leaders, this is not what they expect. They're a little bit caught off guard here. What about the Jewish leaders and the Roman company? If you're going to a walled garden to arrest somebody at the point of sword, what are you expecting when you storm through that gate? Maybe they're hiding behind the trees. Maybe they're trying to scale the wall at the other end. 
Maybe the disciples, in formation, swords drawn, ready to defend Jesus. What they're not expecting is the guy that they're there to arrest to boldly walk straight up to them and say, who are you looking for? Uh, Jesus. Yeah, that's me. Right? He catches them completely off guard because Christ knows what's happening. He's confident in who he is in God, the mission he has to achieve. And I think they literally don't know what to do with Jesus. They have to back up and regroup. Christ knows that he's committing his spirit into the Father's hands. He knows that he's going to be with the Father to enjoy the glory he had from before the world began. And in that confidence in the Father, he boldly moves and directly confronts the soldiers who are there to arrest him. Church, we too should unsettle people by our confidence in Jesus. How we hold up under suffering, how we face trial and adversity, how we handle persecution, pandemics. We are a future-orientated people. We live for what lies ahead with God, which enables us to serve faithfully now in the midst of trial. It's okay to think about politics and government. It's okay to plan ahead for business and to get your finances in order. It's okay to want to be married. Let me ask you this. If a person who knew you well was going to define you to another person, I wonder what they would say. Oh, they're just a conspiracy theorist. They just bang on and on about this or that. Oh, they're always on about politics. They never stop talking about politics. Oh, that person, they're just about money. They just live for money. They're about rugby league, AFL, or they're a fishing nut. What surprises people about us shouldn't be that we're a great fisherman or farmer, but that we have Christ and joyful confidence in Him, integrity in our walk, the good news on our lips regardless of circumstance. This is what strikes people about Jesus. His confidence in the Father is such that they can't shake Him. And our confidence in Christ is such that we should not be shaken. When someone at work or when a person brings an accusation against you or trial comes your way, let them need to step back and regroup because your total confidence and trust in Christ, your ability to rest in His grace, your ability to love your enemy and pray for them is such that it catches them off guard. That if they had to define you, They're going to say, that person's always on about Jesus. There's something about them that gives them hope in Christ. That's got to be what defines us. That's that's what gives us confidence in the trial. In verse 7, we have a repetition of the events that just happened. Jesus again takes the upper hand and asks them who they are seeking. 
Jesus then tells them that he is Jesus who they seek. And he does this in order to protect the disciples who are with them. Jesus has kept them from harm up until this point. He has kept them walking in the truth of his name. And here in the hour of Jesus' arrest, Jesus is again protecting them. Peter, however, good old Peter, he decides to take things into his own hands. And in verse 10, he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now, we've got two possibilities here. We have one possibility of a highly trained, very amazingly talented, accurate swordsman who, in warning to the high priest, brilliantly cuts off his ear. Or we have a hack of a fisherman who is often overconfident without any ability to back it up whatsoever, who has a wild swing, completely misses apart from hitting the guy's ear. I think it's the latter, right? This is good old Peter, a fisherman who might have been all right with filleting a fish, not so good in a sword fight. Um, so whatever he was trying to achieve, uh, he doesn't actually really achieve it all that well. Uh, and so all he gets is poor Malchus's ear. Now, we know that Jesus from the other Gospels will actually heal the guy's ear. That's super important, by the way. Remember Jesus just said, he's doing what he's doing to protect the disciples. There's a contingency of Roman soldiers there. You can't just go around lopping off people's ears with a sword in front of Roman soldiers and expect that there won't be repercussions. Jesus instantly heals the guy. There's actually no crime for Peter to have to pay, right? So Jesus is actually protecting Peter right in that moment. Now, Jesus tells Peter to put away the sword because Jesus is going to drink the cup, the anger of God's wrath against sin. And this is another way of highlighting that Peter and the others still don't truly know what is taking place here. They believe Jesus is from God. They cannot accept that Jesus needs to die. How could God, the almighty maker and creator of all things, die? Peter is trying to fight this fight from an earthly perspective. Now, church, this is the unique and frankly, bizarre claim of Christianity, and nothing else is like this. In other religions, people are sinful and must try and earn God's favor. God is in heaven, we are here, and we have to strive to get to heaven with everything we've got, doing our best and not sure whether or not we will make it. Islam is such this way that Muhammad, the pinnacle of their faith, said he didn't know if he'd done enough to make it. If Muhammad hadn't done enough to make it, what hope do they have? Right? This is other religions. This is how it operates. You've got to strive to try and earn God's favor, and you've got no idea whether or not you're actually going to get there. In Christianity... We are stuck here dead in our sin and God comes to us and pays the penalty. 
Do you know how amazing that is? You sometimes hear an illustration that, you know, you're drowning and God throws a rescue boy and all you have to do is grab it to be saved. Wrong. You are drowned, dead, bloated, floating corpse. And God saves the body and breathes life into it. It's his work in its entirety. God saves us. Jesus comes to pay the penalty of your sin so that he can freely give you life by the grace and mercy of God. Peter, he acts from the flesh. He's trying to earn, protect Jesus, do what's right. Jesus rebukes him. See, rather than act, we need to trust that Christ has done everything necessary to give us salvation. Right? This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. God came down, took on flesh, and paid the penalty of your sin. We finish with John just showing us again the actions of sinful man an intention of evil out of their own heart, but entirely within the will of God. The Roman soldiers, it mentions them here at this point, probably because Peter's just wielded a sword, so the Roman soldiers come forward and grab Jesus and they take him to the Jewish authorities, to Annas, who had been a high priest previously and was the father-in-law of the current high priest and still had a lot of influence. Now, Caiaphas, the current high priest, he had been the one who, to suit their own twisted agenda and ends, had said it's better for one man to die, right? And this man like Jesus, better for one man to die than really what he was saying for us to lose our power and influence. But what he'd said was still spoken prophetically without him even knowing it. Jesus would die for the people that he was saving. This first meeting right now, the taking of Jesus to Annas, is the start of this farcical trial where Jesus is proven guilty of nothing and is condemned only by those who love the darkness and fear the light. Right? This is the beginning of what's about to happen. So what does this tell us? What is going on in this passage? What do we need to learn from this passage? From the garden to the cross, God is in control. The death of Jesus was the central piece of God's plan for our salvation. And when we put our faith in Jesus and receive eternal life by the grace of God. So let's get real. What does that mean for you today? And what will it mean for you tomorrow? Well, there's a beautiful passage that's going to tell us that, and I'm just going to finish with this passage this morning. This is 1 John 4, 7 to 12. 1 John 4, 7 to 12. What does the fact that God came down and paid the penalty of our sin mean for us today and tomorrow? 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Dear friends... Let us love one another, 
because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we almost also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. Church, our faith, our walk with Jesus, our attending church, our serving at church, our giving of time, of money, are not acts of law. They are not acts of legalism that we carry out in order to earn God's favor or to please man. They are an overflow of God's love for us seen in the cross of Christ and then that love then extends to one another as his sacrificial love is completed in us. That's what that passage is saying. We're not under law, we're under grace and as we are transformed by the love of God seen in the cross of Christ, that love then extends into our response to God in gracious love and love for one another in Christ. If you are struggling to attend church on a Sunday, struggling to give, struggling to serve, you turn up occasionally on a Sunday, smile at a few people and leave. It's not because you're busy. It's not because people are not welcoming because you've lost your first love. You've lost the beauty of the cross. And the love of Jesus is not touching your heart. And in coldness you come. It's not meant to be that way. Remember Corinthians? Love is patient. Love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs wasn't written for a wedding ceremony. It was written about the church. If you keep a record of wrongs, then where is your love for God? If you're not kind to one another, then where is your love for God? Our faith is not anchored in law. Our faith is anchored in the love of God. And our walk is an expression of that love shown in our passion for Jesus and our desire to be with and serve one another. That is the expression of the love of God seen in how we live in that love in church. Church, the problem if you're making excuses about serving or whatever it might be, is you need to come back to the love of Christ. And as you behold the miracle of his mercy dying for you on the cross, it's that love that transforms your walk. 
Okay? It's that that makes an outworking in our life. Because we don't serve here. We don't come here. We don't do any of those things because someone makes us. We do it because the love of Christ is made complete in how we love one another. Right? That is the transforming power of the mercy and grace of God. And that's what should be evident in this church. Come back to the love of God. Let's pray. Lord, there is such mercy, grace, beauty in your word. That while we were yet sinners, the righteous Jesus died for the unrighteous us. While we were yet sinners, Lord, you chose us and Christ came to pay the penalty of that sin. Lord, as we as we are stunned by your grace, as we are stunned by that sacrifice, as we behold the beauty of the mercy and love of Jesus who laid down his life for us, Lord, that's meant to impact our hearts. It's meant to humble us. It's meant to make us walk with the most profound sense of gratitude. And Lord, your word says that that same love is completed in the way that it transforms how we care and love for one another. Lord, rescue us from cold, hardened hearts. Bring us back to the awe of what you've done. Lord, may it be a joy, a privilege, an honor to be called the children of God, to gather here together and to worship you. Lord, soften our hearts to understand the love of God again. Lord, we ask that you would do that through your power. We pray that in your name. Amen.